Hey, this is Sean from Wasted Knowledge. Thank you for tuning in for another episode. This is our interview with Ashley Rule, uh, interview number six, part one. Uh, so in this, uh, Ashley is a, a game developer, uh, specifically a cinematic uh, designer, narrative designer. Uh, she works, she's had many other roles. Super, super smart, super fun, great to have a drink with. Uh, so we're going to have some crack and rum. We're going to talk a little bit about Corona the beer. Uh, some Fast and Furious talk, uh, <laughs> which I had nothing to do with. Uh, then we're going to talk about cinematics, a narrative, getting into the games industry, romance in games, uh, working at Bioware and kind of the the idea of AAA and working in AAA. And then we're going to talk, kind of branch into expectations of, of what that kind of work is and burnout in the industry, and then get a little talk about diversity and uh, culture. So sit back, relax, enjoy. And we'll catch you on the other side. Cheers. Okay, so welcome to Wasting Knowledge. Uh, we have uh, Ashley. Can we use your last name? Mm-hmm. Rule. She <laughs> <laughs> rules. Uh, and she is a professional game developer, uh, to, for the, the very broadest of terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, she works in game development. And we're, we're drinking a little bit of uh, Kraken rum daiquiris. Yes. Uh, brought to you by Kraken, but yet not paid for by Kraken. So get on that Kraken. You can dream. Uh, They're going to sponsor us one day. Hopefully. Everyone. We should actually just get a distributor to sponsor us, not a not a particular brand. Anywho. Oh, random random trivia. Did you know Shoot. that um, Corona has never sponsored a uh, Fast and Furious movie? They just put it in there constantly. Yeah. I somehow did not know that Corona was in Fast and the Furious. Vin Diesel likes yeah. Corona a Yeah, it's just in every film and like prominently displayed like it was a paid advertisement, but it's not. They just keep putting it in every movie. I wonder if they're just going to send them a bill like after they've made ten of them. Yeah. <laughs> they're on nine. Right, exactly. You can't, don't stop now. It's got our Corona punch card done. <laughs> Tenth movie is for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Understand that I can basically ranked my top ten movies of all time with two words Fast Furious. <laughs> I mean, do you really count the first two? Uh, what do you mean? They're the best. What? Too Fast, Too Furious, Ludacris, Tyrese. No, the, fir- the best one is five. <laughs> this this needs to be the entire podcast. <laughs> was, Debate was, Fast and the Furious. Yeah. Was, was, was five? Five is great. when they introduce uh, The Rock. Yeah. And The Rock and Vin Diesel throw each other through concrete walls. And they also steal a, a bank vault by tying cables to two cars and like just it, and it's like flailing around in the city just hitting people as they drag it behind them another random Fast and Furious trivia oh, God. that bank vault in that scene uh-huh. is another car they're driving it behind the oh first my car gosh. It back and forth. that is amazing they shortened the frame on it and threw it yeah. anyway all right. That's that's a good one. Wow. I uh, <laughs> I was just going to be like kind of a chooch and a nitpicker and be like, is it technically a Fast and the Furious? Because I believe it was called Fast Five. Yes, it was. It was um, Fast Five. But yeah, that's all of my Fast and the Furious knowledge. Mm-hmm. I saw the first one, <laughs> and I liked it. And I was like, I don't want to see spinoffs. It's going to ruin it for me. Mm. You don't live your life a quarter mile at the time. <laughs> I, I, oh, I was gonna get really dark it's about there for family, a right? <laughs> I mean, ugh, never, you know, you know, I, yeah, I don't know why my mind is going there, All but right. uh, one of the actors did. Nothing. The movie franchise had to change. Yeah, but Dwayne the Rock Johnson is the savior. 
He is. I mean, actually, he's a really special human being, I think. Oh, no, I think of it. Sorry, it was in the seventh one when he's uh, coaching his uh, daughter's soccer team <laughs> and he teaches them the, uh, what was it, the, the like battle warrior cry. The haka. Yeah, yeah, the haka. Yes. And the other, it's just like 10 year old girls doing this, and the, one of the girls on the other team is like, I'm done, I'm out. <laughs> like, this is too scary. <laughs> Oh, and that was the one where he's in a giant cast, and yes. he, he's like, Daddy's got to go to work, and he flexes out of the cast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really ridiculous franchise. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he just Jason Statham to it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, why not? Although he killed Han, so I can never forgive him for I that. I can never forgive him. Uh, no. Song was the saving grace of Tokyo Drift. Yeah, yeah. He was destroyed. he was so good. They made the next movie's prequel so they could have Han in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they thought Lil Bow Wow was gonna be that, but Lil Bow Wow was worse than mm -hmm. Tyrese. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't think Lil Bow Wow was. I don't even know why he was popular. He drove a Hulk Kia. It was a Kia, right? No, maybe the Scion. I don't this remember. Really <laughs> fast, fast, You're so fast excited. Cast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is really all I ever wanted. It was just the second The long con. We got a full season in. Season two, Fast and the Furious. That's all we're talking about. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bring up Fast and the Furious in every single interview right. from now on. Mm -hmm. Tonight, Jeff proposed. Good luck editing. Fast and the Furious. Mm -hmm. Like every five minutes, I'm just gonna reintroduce the show, and just so I can have like maybe a, maybe a clean edit. <laughs> Welcome to Wasted Knowledge. We're here with Ashley Rule, who's a professional game developer. Have you seen any good movies lately? <laughs> what's that one Star Trek movie directed by uh, what's his name? Uh, Jason Statham. No, Justin Justin yeah. Lin. I get that. Oh right. yeah, Justin Lin. Yeah, that's that. that's a great Fast and Furious movie. It's got spaceships drifting through space. And then they did. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. Oh, but they they defeat the the army in the most rad way possible. It's really good. This is this is going to be all like Patreon content. <laughs> <laughs> like if we can just get the right frequency. He's like <laughs> yes, 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 do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. You're a monster. Okay. <sighs> I got it. Out. You're a monster. <laughs> not my gumdrop buttons. <laughs> I'm not the monster. You are. <laughs> do you know the Muffin Man? Yes, I do oh. know the Muffin Man. Who lives on Drury Lane? <laughs> well, she's married to the Muffin Man. The Muffin Man. The Muffin Man. She's married to the Muffin Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be an episode of tangents. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, since we hit a pause, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, uh, I've been in games for about eight years. Uh, I started in cinematics, making cutscenes and making characters move around and doing the cameras and. Uh, basically taking anything that needed that was written on the page and making it visual and most recently I've been doing uh, narrative work and doing a little bit of writing uh, 
being a narrative designer, it's like kind of between design and writing. You basically take the writing, you write some of it, but mostly you take it from other writers and you put it with the game design to make sure the story makes sense within the gameplay. So mm -hmm. the, the, the writing works with the, uh, the gameplay design and then the gameplay design isn't getting in the way or, you know, interrupting the story and creating any, any weird uh, issues. What kind of issues could those be? Well, like um, um, narrative dissonance, where you have uh, the story is telling you one thing, but the gameplay is doing something else. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, and you see this in games all the time, and it's unavoidable where you have a big choice of you know who lives and who dies, and you choose to spare the person, and then say in gameplay immediately after you can just murder them. It creates this weird like, well, it you lost all the weight that was in the story to begin with. Right. Uh, because you you didn't make it in such a way that the, the gameplay was supporting what was written, what what the worth was or what the importance was in the story at that point. But, yeah. Cool. Oh, TC, TC uh, seems to have lost his mic. Sorry about that. All right. Um, so how did you get into Game uh, I went to school for animation. I knew coming out of high school that I wanted to be uh, some kind of animator, visual storyteller. And uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to shoot for Pixar, and if I don't get to Pixar, I'll be somewhere in that vicinity, you know, shoot for the moon, end up in the stars. And when I was in school, uh, there was a game program just in the same building, uh, and that's actually where I met Johnny, my husband. and. Uh, they, what I really liked about the game program, because I never considered working in games, and I was, I was still in a space where I didn't really feel comfortable being in the game space, because, you know, at that time, being a woman in the game space was, you know, very much a unicorn, and I didn't really want that kind of attention, and I wanted to just blend in, and it was very hard to do. Uh, but being in the game space, I realized there were some really interesting opportunities in terms of narrative, in that you can create a story that people live rather than just watch. And you get to experience it and, and throw yourself into it, and that it's a dialogue. The, the narrative and the experience is a dialogue between the creator and the player, and so you have to create an experience that allows them enough freedom to have the kind of experience that they want. Uh, within the confines of the theme. Uh, yeah, and that's that's kind of how I got into that. I joined the, uh, or I interviewed for the DePaul Game Elites, which was a game uh, team that was formed just to enter a game into the Independent Games Festival for the Student Showcase, and we got in, and that was pretty cool. And I met a bunch of people at GDC, and that's how I found my first game job, was somebody who also volunteered at GDC, was working at uh, Bioware Austin. and. They said, we're hiring cinematic designers. And I went, what the hell is a cinematic designer? <laughs> and I applied anyway uh, with my animation reel. And uh, I got hired uh, working on Star Wars Old, Old Republic. So that was my first gig. And then I just kept chasing it, chasing jobs across the country. Went Chicago to Austin to San Diego to San Francisco, and now I'm back in Austin. Is there a uh, particular narrative conversation uh, that, that you tend to design or that you like to design? 
I mean, I always want to do more romances. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get an opportunity to do that, but it's something I, I more study in theory that I just really enjoy. I, I like that escapism, and I want to see... I, I basically want to make the things that I don't see in games right now. Mm. And a lot of romance in games is focused on a goal, that the relationship is the goal, but I would like to see more... Uh, stories where the relationship, no matter how you build it, the, the, the energy spent in it is the goal and not the relationship status. So you could build a relationship with someone where your uh, mortal enemies or you know your, your arch enemy uh, or it's a loving relationship or it starts loving and then becomes enemies or enemies and then love re relationship. But the way game systems are designed they give you achievements when you reach like a certain love threshold, when you like achieve a romance with a character. And it's not as much about just the journey of getting to know someone really well. And I want to see more relationship evolution in that. Um, and also the fact that a lot of games treat sex as like the, the checkmark pinnacle of you made it, you're in a relationship now, <laughs> when it's really a mundane part of I mean, sometimes mundane, but like it's a natural part of relationships. A lot of relationships, not all, obviously. Um, but games often treat it as like your reward for putting in all this time and effort. And uh, I was talking to some people today about how wouldn't it be interesting if you started with sex and you had this like sexual encounter with a character and then you uh, built a relationship past that and you said okay we got this out of the way <laughs> this isn't like a goal this isn't a what-if scenario there is there is valid validity to slow burns because I love a good slow burn but games are so dominated by romances where sex is the ultimate goal and I think that diminishes the relationship that the time you spend with the person and the emotional investment you put into it. So there's definitely a way that it can happen, which is romance in reality can happen in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. That there's no reason that games as a medium for storytelling and expression can't do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we just have to change the way we systemically look at romance uh, in games and how we reward it. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of uh, game systems are about progression. They're about uh, increasing your stats or increasing skill. Uh, some kind of indication of you have made progress. And when it comes to human emotion and relationships, if you simplify it down to you've reached the threshold of marriage or your relationship or whatever, it, it feels more like a goal you have to achieve rather than a story that evolves out over time. And so the, the goal becomes um, making sure this works out rather than just having an experience. Uh, somebody was saying today how uh, they had a choice with a character that they were romancing that was really interesting because in order to maintain a, a, a good relationship with her, they had to betray the best uh, outcome for the game. They had to choose to make a poor decision in the reality of the game in order to maintain their relationship with her. And I thought, it's like, that's really interesting. But because the relationship had an achievement that he hadn't gotten yet, and he wanted that achievement, he sided with her against his own, like, 
idea of like going with the story of the game because he wanted that achievement. So that was one example of like systemically, the achievement itself changed the way he played the game and didn't hmm. create as uh, genuine of a emotional experience. That is, that's that's really okay. interesting because I mean like I I think about that and it, it is fairly you said it's fairly systemic and ingrained in the game culture and like even you talking about like well how would you go about that from like a development standpoint because it can because doing something like building a relationship like that it seems like it would be very <clears throat> a difficult a much more difficult thing to put into I guess at the very core ones and zeros you know <laughs> like if you don't have like relationships and dynamics between people and the ebbs and flow of creating relationships is something that's so ever-changing and crazy like how do you kind of rate that in a in a game sense to make it more realistic yeah that you would we would you would have to kind of reimagine the entire existence of it as a game because if you don't have an achievement or you don't have a end goal in sight like just kind of i'm just gonna go have a conversation with this person and see where it goes yeah i think the, off the top of my head from today, I think, uh, when I was thinking about it, uh, I think it's more about how, how much has this relationship evolved in terms of um, intimacy? And intimacy can be based in negative or positive interactions. Right. Just how well do you know this person? And your achievements are how long have you uh, interacted with this person so that can go negative or positive over time but that's still like you are progressing through a relationship it's with this person spent, yeah and I think the best game right now to look at uh, just all the different ways of quantifying relationships is The Sims I should ask are you are you allowed to talk uh, specifically about things you have worked on or places you've worked in games yeah yeah okay. I think so I don't want to I don't want to Dive down a, a place that's not okay. Mm -hmm. um, if it is, I will just I just won't talk about it yeah, because you're, you're a professional. Yeah. But, uh, talk about but I also respect you. And I just <laughs> want to make sure. Um, so how? I think we're roughly the same age. Mm -hmm. uh, when you started at Bioware, was that uh, was that a pretty big adrenaline rush for you, or were you familiar with their work? Time. Oh yeah, um, I was a huge Mass Effect nerd. Yeah, like I loved Mass Effect, and then I found out the guy who was uh, running the cinematics department did a lot of the cinematics for Garrus, and I was like, ah, I was so happy. <laughs> um, and then I found out because I read all the Mass Effect novels that uh, Drew Carpishin, who wrote all the novels, worked like two uh, pods away from me, and I was just like, how do I approach him? Without sounding like some crazy fangirl, <laughs> I waited until my last the day of the last day of my contract to come up to him and was like, "Can you sign my book?" <laughs> um, did he? He did. Oh, yeah, he's very nice. And then I, when I came back to Austin, I worked another contract at Bioware, and I got to work with him a lot. So uh, that was cool. But yeah, it was um, it was a big rush, and this was when uh, Star Wars: The Old Republic was getting a lot of hype. And everybody was constantly release date, release date, release date, and nobody knew when it was coming out. It had been in development for like eight years at that point, or yeah, six, six to eight years. And when I got the job, everybody I was in school with, or had been in school with, because I'd graduated, uh, was super pumped. They were like, "What?" It was a lot of name recognition. 
uh, and it was it was really really cool. I knew that the main studio that made Mass Effect was in Edmonton in Canada, and so this was a separate studio. But I was really grateful for that because I knew I did not want to make. Uh, Mass Effect because I wanted it to stay pure. <laughs> if I make it, then I see what's under the hood, and then it's just going to make me sad. Right. Um, so I I was really excited to work at Bioware, and it was it was a cool place to work, and uh, we got all kinds of Star Wars swag all the time, and like visits from the five o first, and uh, <laughs> that's right, right. Yeah. Yeah. First, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, they had a local chapter in Austin. They'd come to like our holiday parties and stuff. And uh, Darth Vader would, was there on Halloween with all the stormtroopers and all the kids like came around and got candy from him. It was great. Um, yeah, it was it was really cool to uh, to start there. There was on reflection as I get older, though, a kind of moment where I realized that I had put so much weight on working at a company that people had heard of or a game that people had heard of that that set a benchmark for the rest of my career that if I wasn't working on something that people had heard of I got depressed because I was like what am I even doing if I'm not Mm. I guess popular but I don't think it was something I really confronted uh, while I was working there Um, I, I had been in training at Bioware Austin for a week and then I went to GDC as a volunteer and I had Bioware on my badge and this other volunteer saw that I had Bioware and he literally got down on his knees and started like worshipping me like bowing I'm like I haven't done anything Mm -hmm. but it was because I had Bioware and he he loved Bioware and it created this um, and I love the attention but it created this like expectation that if I wasn't doing something that people liked or people were excited about that I was not doing what I was supposed to. And that, that took a long time to divorce myself from that idea of uh, that I need to be working on something renowned. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people in the industry have that problem because they, they get into games like, oh, I love Ratchet and Clank, so I really want to work for Insomniac. It's like, no, 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 that's not why you do this. You use Ratchet and Clank as a jumping off point that inspired you. But you can work at any studio and you need to be looking at the quality of the studio uh, how they work and not just their products because a lot of people want to work at uh, studios that are incredibly unhealthy in, yeah. in the way they make their games yeah. but they want that name recognition and it's like that's not worth it that's not worth your mental health so that was that was a it was exciting that Bioware Austin was like my first big game job but I think it also set up this expectation that I needed to to be this renowned game designer from there on out is that something you've you think you've kind of at least um, maybe not grown past, but have started to deal with? Oh yes, yes, definitely. Um, when I left Telltale, uh, I dealt with a lot of like freak out of, ah, oh, who am I? Because when I was at Telltale, I was on the route to becoming a season director. I had directed two episodes. Um, I was uh, set up to direct more. Um, and directing was so emotionally and physically exhausting. I had to take my work home with me every night. Uh, I loved working with the team, but I, like, it, it was it was draining me. I was drinking more, um, and there was this. And my husband Johnny was working at uh, Ubisoft, and we're just like, you know what? We really don't like it here. Austin was pretty great. Let's go back there. <laughs> and so we left. But there was this moment after I left uh, Telltale. 
that I just, I was like, what is my identity? I don't have an identity. It, it, my job was my identity. I don't know what I was supposed to do. And I was freaking out that I had to like learn how to be okay with being a normal human mm -hmm. and not some kind of rock star that everybody like idolized. Uh, and to be fair, I know there are still a lot of people who look up to me and I, I know that I'm better for not defining myself by those achievements, mm -hmm. that I'm glad that I do those things, but it's not, I don't want to carry myself in a way that I'm, I'm about that. You know, it's something I did. I'm very proud of it, but I'm also a multifaceted human that does other things. So that did take some time. That took like a good year of like self-reflection of like not just exploding to realize that I could just be a person that went to a job and did an okay game. <laughs> I didn't have to constantly be pushing the envelope every single day. So within that respect, what what makes you or gives you the feeling of fulfillment and satisfaction and, and joy in your job now? If it does, I mean, it's okay if it doesn't. Yeah, I think I think it's been harder to find. Um, I don't feel like I'm I'm doing as as heroic of a thing anymore, but I also feel like I have a life. Um, when I was directing at Telltale, I felt like oh, I'm doing something really great. I'm, I'm creating this amazing story that people are going to love. But then I was very glued to like videos of people watching and making sure everyone was enjoying it. And now I, I find joy in the smaller things and just making sure that everything is running. Everyone is happy. Uh, everyone has, can do their job well um, around me. I mean, I, I do my own work, but I try to make sure that when I communicate with other departments that I'm communicating clearly, that we're all on the same page, that we're all sort of shooting for the same goal. Um, but I know that I'm not going to, you know, break the mold in any way right now with what I'm doing. I don't have any aspirations at the moment to do that. What I really want to do is just make a healthy working environment for me and the people around me, because Unfortunately, games have so few of those, and in game development, it's like, that seems like the most revolutionary thing we can be doing right now, is just creating a healthy, regular working environment where people trust each other, they're not defensive, everybody's okay with admitting fault, uh, everybody communicates well, everyone makes mistakes and is okay with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's that seems to be but that's, that's really my focus right now. And I, I have a couple, uh, there are a couple of women I work with now that I'm almost kind of mother henning sometimes because they have all these questions. They've been in the industry a couple of years, but I'm like, no, 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 this, some of this, some of this is bullshit. You're dealing with bullshit. Don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. And like trying to make sure that they don't go through the same things that I did. Right. Yeah. That's really nice. I like that. You said that when you were getting into the industry and everything, you were a unicorn being a female in mm -hmm. the game space and everything like that. You see that, have you seen, like I see it, but it, from the inside, how much or how quickly is that changing? Is it still, I mean, I know it's still definitely weighted heavily, but from when you began to now, how quickly do you feel like is it changing positively? I think it is. It is still very slow. Uh, I think the industry average is still 18%. Uh, or no, no, it's probably like 15% women. Okay. 
uh, so it's still very low. Um, Telltale was about 25%. It was one of the highest that I had seen, at least in, in the US. I think there are some places overseas that are more balanced. And there are some studios that are really trying to make that as, as balanced as possible. Um, the biggest thing I see is that now that we're, we have all these diversity initiatives and diversity initiatives are in vogue, everybody's trying to say, oh, we're gonna hire, uh, we're gonna hire more diversity, we're gonna hire more people of color, more queer people, more women, more non-binary people. And the problem is that they just hire those people and then they pat themselves on the back, like, oh, we did it. Good job, everyone. Um, without educating the people within the studios, saying, "Here are the things we need to to know. Like, the, here are the things that you may have been uh, insensitive about in the past. This is how we're going to adjust, and this is how we need to learn to take our interactions in the future. If we make mistakes, like this is how we need to adjust. And we can't put all of the weight of adjusting our culture on the people who were hired." Uh, to make our culture more diverse. I mean, they, they weren't hired for the diversity. That's the thing. That's the big thing is that they weren't, like, I don't get hired to be the woman on the team. It's just I happen to be a woman in game dev. And so if it becomes my job to call people out constantly, I get a reputation of being stingy or bitchy or whatever. And that's not my job. My job is to make games. <laughs> right. um, and so that's that's been the most frustrating bit. And you're seeing that in tech too. They've had huge attrition rates of uh, people who have been hired under diversity initiatives leaving because the culture didn't shift when they got there, that nothing changed. They just thought, oh, we hire these people and everything will be better. It's like, nope, you have to do more work. <laughs> you have to put more on yourself to like educate yourself and because that, that is not our job. We don't need two jobs. We don't need to be the uh, diversity con consultant and the game designer. Yeah, yeah, it's that that's the frustrating part and different studios are better at it and it really is a culture from the top. If the if the top of the company values uh listening to uh marginalized groups and making sure that everybody is on the same page and making sure that everyone is educated and educating themselves and taking an effort to educate themselves then you see more progress in those spaces. And you also see more cooperation, more trust. Um, people feel more comfortable making mistakes and just being around each other uh, versus studios that kind of just brush it under the rug and hope it solves itself, and it never does. <laughs> All right, we're gonna cut this part right here. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. If you're still here, that must mean you enjoy it. So please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be getting this podcast from, even if you're listening to it on WastedKnowledge.com. Feel free to leave us a comment there. Of course, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WastedKPodcast. You can send us an email at WastedKnowledgePodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also uh, support us if you'd like to at patreon.com forward slash wasted knowledge. We would truly appreciate it. It would definitely help us uh, make more episodes. Uh, outside of that, we really do appreciate you listening. So as always, drink responsibly and get a safe ride home. Cheers. <laughs>